had to finish up my sermon real quick. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I need to start out this morning just letting you know it's a sad day for me today. We are at the final week of our series on the eternal struggle. And I, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. I've enjoyed uh, some of the challenges that George Fall has, has put before me as I've studied through uh, his work. And I, I said this every Sunday. This is something that he spent over 30 years of his life putting together. If you would like to hear this in its entirety, it's about five to six hours worth of information from Genesis into the New Testament and the life of Christ. You can go to faithfulpreaching.org. It's faithfulpreaching.org, and there'll be a picture of George Fall right there. You'll know him when you see him. You'll be like, oh yeah, he's, he's a little over 35. You can tell. But he's got some other stuff on there, but just click under his picture, and you can listen to this. It's the only time that they were able to get a good recording of that whole series in the 35 years that he has shared it and developed it. But it has definitely been a challenge, or has challenged me. I hope it has also challenged you. And today we're going to just pick right up where we left off. God has said that the Messiah will come from a virgin. And my question to you is, who do you know that about? Is there any other man in all history that was born of a virgin? Of the house of David, of the family of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, of the Jewish nation, of the Semitic race. Who do you know that about? Only one person. Only one book in the world even tells you the answer to that question, and it's the Bible. All of these stories that I've shared with you through this month from the Old Testament, I've, I've shared them with you. We see the devil saying, I'm not going to let him come. I'm not. I'm going to prevent it. I'm going to stop. And he fought and he fought. But Jesus is the one who fulfills that prophecy. And the Bible tells us, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. And you know the amazing thing of that is, it's based on historical events. From creation to the birth of Christ, God just kept funneling it down. Who could be the Messiah? So the arrow would point to only one person in history that would be born of a woman, made under the law, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Even when he was born, Herod feared him. He tried to kill him. He wanted to kill that little baby boy. So he ordered all baby boys under the age of two years old would be killed. But God's move, I told you we're kind of picturing this big checkerboard in our head, if you will, and God's move on that checkerboard was to move Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus down to Egypt. And it fulfilled a scripture that says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Jesus went to Egypt. And then we see later, about 12 years of age, about his, he's about his father's business. And then we fast forward to his baptism. I want to pause on that for a second because I want to share something with you that I found very interesting as I went back and researched it. You see, usually, historically speaking, when a Jewish boy was about 12 or 13 years old, the parents would take that boy to the temple and if the boy was like the father, the father would adopt him. And you may be thinking, well, he's his son. He has to adopt him. He didn't. You need to know this. Back then, in that time, being the physical son of a man didn't mean that that father necessarily counted you as son. If the father didn't think the son was like him, the father didn't have to claim him. That was true in the Roman world as well. Their idea of adoption was totally different than ours. You see, they didn't adopt little babies like we do. They adopted basically grown young men who had their spirit. For example, Alexander the Great said, my father is not Philip of Macedon. In fact, that was his father. But he said, my father is Aristotle. 
Why? Because he had the spirit of Aristotle. Aristotle liked the arts, and because he liked the arts, Alexander the Great collected all of the great libraries and all of the great um, paintings and the great musicians. Alexander the Great many times said, my father is Aristotle because I'm like Aristotle. Which brings new weight to the phrase when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are like your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. You see, the To be the son of someone meant that you were like him. So usually when a boy was 12 or 13 years old, the father had trained the boy to talk like him, to act like him in that, maybe in his craft, in his skill. The father had trained up that boy to think like him. And if the boy didn't think like him, the father didn't have to claim him. You see, once he would put his arm around that boy and say, this is my son, the boy at 12, 13, as he continued to grow into a young man, could speak with the authority of the father. See, he could say, I'll buy all these sheep for whatever amount of money. And the father would honor that because the boy now spoke with his father's authority. Listen, you didn't put your arm around a boy and say, this is my son, unless he had your spirit, unless he had what you wanted him, the, the character traits that you wanted. So at 12 years old, They would take a boy to the temple and they would ask the boy two questions. How long has it been since your mother and father came together before you were born? And the answer to that question, it had to be one year. If it wasn't a year, then you were in some kind of trouble. Second question, are there at least five generations of Jewish women in your family? And you had to be able to say yes to that. Now, Jesus could say yes to the one, but he couldn't say yes to the other. If you couldn't answer those two questions, yes, you didn't get to go to school. All right. So at 12 years of age, Jesus is in talking to the rabbis. And the Bible says that Jesus went home and was subject to Mary and Joseph. Jesus never got to go to school. He was subject to Mary and Joseph. But years later, when he was teaching, you'll remember this. People said, how does this man know these things? Not having ever learned them. He doesn't know the letters, yet he was able to write in the sand at one point. He he didn't get to go to school. Jesus wasn't like Joseph. He was the son of Joseph, but he didn't get to go to school. The actual refer to him again as an adult, as the supposed son of Joseph. But you'll be pleased to know that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, the Bible says this. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Verse 17 says, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus didn't start his ministry until after that baptism. That's when God the father testified, this is my boy. This is my beloved son. And that's when Jesus began to speak with the authority of the father. And here he is. And they they should have known that he was the Messiah. They were also living in the fourth world power. And I preached about this a few weeks ago that Daniel prophesied about. The scepter had departed from David. I've shared that with you a few times. And in the days of those kings, the Lord God of heaven was, was going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The Jews should have known that the Messiah was among them. What's interesting to see is that Jesus, at that point, began to call his disciples. He asked them to come to him, and they did. 
And so fishermen, tax collectors, zealots came, and they were all trying to call all kinds of people to him because he had great power. He had power over disease. He had, he had power over death. He had power over demons. He had power over the elements. He was a great miracle worker, and he did these miracles to produce faith. Jesus did many things that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. No other man talked like Jesus. None of the spiritual leaders spoke like Jesus when it came to sharing what Scripture was about or to sharing how you should live your life. And Jesus, during his ministry, he's telling parables of the lost sheep, of the prodigal son, of the good Samaritan, the foolish and wise builder, the foolish and wise virgins. He was a great parable giver, and it caused people to listen to him with interest as he spoke. And that brings me to my next focal point. You see, in the eternal struggle, we like to think that Satan is the only one that's trying to disrupt what's happening here. But in our day and age today, there's a, there's a disruption that happens. And, and unfortunately, it happens within Christian people. Part of that disruption is that, that we say, well, well, there are these four Gospels and they're all different. They contradict each other. There's holes in the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't all... They don't all mesh the way they should because they're all telling different things. And who do I believe? And those are big conversations that are had amongst Christian people. You see, here's the thing. We have these four different Gospels, but what you need to understand about them is they're written to four different people groups. Matthew, for example, was written to the Jews to convince people that Jesus was the King. He gives... Christian, or excuse me, he gives Christ credentials and he reveals Christ as the king. That's why constantly Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David. Eight times he says he's the son of David. He gives us Jesus' public preaching ministry. He quotes 65 Old Testament prophecies to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is a Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew taught the Jews, here's what Jesus taught. Mark was written to the Romans. They're men of action. They're interested in what you taught. They're interested in what you wrought. What you did, if you will. Mark shows Christ's work and he, he reveals Christ as the priest. That's why there's no genealogy given in the book of Mark. Because Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what he wants people to know. Mark doesn't give Jesus' lineage because it wouldn't do any good to show that he was of the tribe of Judah because he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's not, he's not that priestly person. He's, he's from the order of Melchizedek. Mark is trying to show Christ as a priest who forever lives. So in Mark, instead of calling him the son of David, he's called the son of God. And Mark gives his actions because they were men of action. And he explains to Gentile readers Jewish customs. And they have a better understanding of who Christ is. Well, then we have Luke, the doctor. He wrote to the intellectuals, if you will. He wrote to the Greeks, the people who, who thought sometimes more than they acted with all their philosophies and, and their different, uh, different concepts. He wrote to the Greeks and he shows Christ's complex nature. He shows Christ as a prophet. Matthew is what he taught. Mark is what he wrought. Luke is what he thought. See, you'll remember those now. Luke shows us what Jesus was thinking about. He calls Jesus the Son of Man. Son of Man in the Bible is another, another designation for prophet. And so when you read the prophets 
uh, the, and then the prophecies about Jesus, it's son of man this and son of man that. It's a, des- it's a designation of a prophet. And Luke calls Christ the son of man 25 times. And he tells his, his audience, he shares with them what Jesus is thinking, giving us his inmost thoughts. And he alone records the prayers of Jesus. You want to know a man? Listen to his prayers. And Luke is sharing with his audience the innermost thoughts of Jesus. Then the Gospel of John, he, or Luke says, shows what he thinks. And the Gospel of John is written to the world to show Christ's deity and to reveal him as the Messiah. That Christ is God in the flesh. He is who he claimed to be. John gives us about 20 titles of Jesus and eight miracles that were done. These eight miracles that John, or that John focuses on, these eight miracles could not have been manipulated. I encourage you to go read through the book of John and look at these miracles. Brothers and sisters, the Gospels don't contradict themselves anywhere when you know who and why they were written. To show what he taught, to show what he wrought, and to show what he thought. These are what the Gospels are for. So, so who did Jesus claim to be? He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection of the life. He said, I am the true vine. He said, I am the door. I am the Messiah. I am before Abraham. In fact, he just plain out says, I am. Jesus even said, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that Jesus is the God in the flesh, you will die in your sins. That is an absolute essential doctrine. And these are not words of an egomaniac unless he isn't those things. It's often been said there are only three positions you can take about Jesus. He is either a liar who said he was things but wasn't. He's a lunatic who thought he was things but isn't. Or he is Lord. You can't take a middle of the road position here, folks. And you, you can't just say, I think Jesus was a good man. No, he was a liar if he wasn't who he claimed to be. This is who he claimed to be. He said, I'm the Messiah. If I had said those things that Jesus said about himself, if I stood up here and said them about myself, you would rightly conclude that I am either crazy or a liar or a little bit of both. But Jesus said these things about himself. He testified under oath in court that he was the son of God. It's something you need to know. Under the law of Moses, Moses, if a high priest asked you a question and said, I adjure thee, you could not refuse to answer the question. You notice when you look through the, the trial of Jesus, he never answered the pagans when they questioned him about who he was. But when the high priest said, I adjure thee, are you the Christ or not? Jesus said, I am. And he testified under oath to the Jewish people that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And that, my friends, is what you have to accept about Jesus. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And on that mount of transfiguration, there was Moses representing the law. There was Elijah representing the prophets. And there came this great voice out of heaven that said, this is my son, hear him. You see, Moses and the law can't save you. 
Elijah and the prophets can't save you. It is only Jesus Christ who can save you. And the Bible tells us what they were discussing on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says that day they were discussing Jesus' death in Jerusalem. And that's what the Old Testament prophets had been prophesying about. That the Messiah should suffer and die and rise again from the dead on the third day. Do you know there are 336 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah and what would happen to him? Do you know how many of those I fulfill? One. I'm a man. That's the only one of those prophecies that I fulfill. You see, God has worked out this amazing system of the law being the shadow of what is to come and 336 prophecies that the Messiah is coming and he fulfills every one of them. God in the old days spoke through the prophets and now he speaks through his son and through his word. He is the one that we listen to today. When they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was able to do some things that his disciples couldn't do. I want to jump forward as I've been doing this whole series, so stay with me. Now we're Jesus and his disciples, and they're coming near to Caesarea Philippi. This is a city that is built on a mountain, on the edge of a mountain, if you will. And they come to this, to the coast of it, and they see this big city with, it, with its wall, and it's on the base of this mountain, it's this firm foundation, if you will, with a gatekeeper. And Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? They gave several answers, and then Peter said this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. First time he met Peter, he said, You are Simon. You shall be called Peter, but you are Simon. That's, that's future. But if you look all through that, the Bible continues to call him Simon. But then after he gives the good confession, it says this, Matthew 16, and Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now listen, our Roman friends want to say that Peter is the foundation of the church. But what Jesus is actually saying here is you are Petras, and on this Petra, I will build my church. He changed it from the masculine to the feminine. Remember, the church is his bride. Jesus is using Caesarea Philippi as an illustration for his disciples here. And for us, he's, he said it's built on this rock, my church. My kingdom is going to sit on a great rock. And that great rock is the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to build my church on the fact that I am the Son of the living God. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is saying that death itself will not keep him from establishing his kingdom. Now, in this eternal struggle, I've been showing you how the devil's been trying to prevent this from happening. But here he is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king, testified under oath. And by the way, he crushed Satan's head when he rose from the grave. The Bible is irrefutable. The devil has been defeated. And I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. 
Now, I told you a few weeks ago how on, on that same mountain that Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice Isaac, it was the same place where Jesus would be crucified and sacrificed for our sins. For Abraham, there was a ram in the thicket to take Isaac's place. But there was no ram for Jesus because he is the Passover lamb and not a leg of him was broken. As Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw near, I will draw all men to me. Jesus died on that cross for you and me. Did you know on that day of atonement, after the, on the day of atonement, after the priest would offer up a sacrifice, he would lift up his hands and bless the people. And then he went into the most holy place and he, was, he, wore, an, he wore clothes and it was just a white robe. It was called a, a rament. And he was just wearing this white robe and he would take the blood in there and he would put it in the mercy seat where they said that God dwelled. And the people would, uh, sorry, um, if God accepted it, then there was this phenomenal thing that would happen. The house would be filled with the glory of the Lord and people would know that it was accepted. And then the priest would change from his white remnant into his glorious high priest garment. And the people, they're out there waiting on him. And when he finally would come out, the Bible says that fire would fall from heaven and it devoured what was still containing sin of that sacrifice. And the people would all bow their heads and hide their eyes. But look at our king. After he offered his one sacrifice forever, what did he do? He came back and he took people. He took them as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. He ascended into heaven itself. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood. And he took his own blood with him in there. He went in as a man, you know, in his white sinless humanity and God accepted it. So how do we know that God accepted it? Because the phenomenon of Pentecost was the fact that God accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus has changed into his glorious garments. John even said, I touched him. We ate fish with him. He also said, I don't know what he is like now because he has put on his glorious garments. And all that we're waiting for is for him to come back. And when he comes out, what's going to happen? He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who chose not to know God and those who chose not to obey the gospel. He told them to wait for the gift. He told his disciples that. Wait for the gift that I will give you. The helper, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pause real quick. All next month, we're going to deconstruct the Trinity. We're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about the Son. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them, you wait on the helper. You wait on the Holy Spirit. And then go into all the world, preaching and teaching and baptizing. And they did. They waited in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, they preached repentance and remission of sin, just like they were instructed. And he preached, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those people came into the church. They were added to the church as membership. Some people are wayward on membership. 3,000 were added to the church. And the giving of the law, just a side note, Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. That's administration of death. And at the giving of the gospel, 3,000 were saved. That's the administration of life. And then they went everywhere preaching the word. And when they did, people like the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? The Bible says, Saul, why tarry? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. 
The Philippian jailer, when he heard the word of God, he was baptized. Lydia was baptized. Cornelius, even after he received the Holy Spirit, was baptized. Peter still commanded his house to be baptized. You see the kind of baptism you have to have? Men do it to you. Because the command is to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it ironic that out of the nine conversions in the book of Acts, and if you read through them, there's something different about each one. But the common thread about every one of those conversions is their baptism. All nine of them were baptized. Why do I bring that up? Because it's one of those things that the the denominational world wants to argue about. The one thing they deny is what is mentioned every time in the book of Acts, and it's baptism. But people say, you know, it's, it's the thing you don't have to do is the thing every one of them did. Jesus died on the cross. God works, worked things out those 6,000 or so years of history. He said, I'm going to send the Messiah. The devil says, I'm going to stop it. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm going to send him and he's going to be of this race. Devil said, I'm going to kill that race. God says, I'm going to make him of this nation. Devil said, I'm going to destroy that nation. God said, I'm going to make it of this tribe. Well, I'll get rid of that tribe. Then I'm going to make it of this family. Satan says, I'll get rid of that family. God says, I'm going to get this house. Satan says, I'll kill off that house. And God says, well, then I'm going to get the individual. And the devil says, all right, I'll just kill off the virgin. But he couldn't do it. And Jesus Christ allowed himself to be our sacrifice. That was of his will, not the devil's. That was of Jesus' will. The Bible says Jesus gave up himself. He is the Lord and Christ. My only question for you after hearing all of this through this whole month is, why in the world wouldn't you accept Christ after God spent 6,000 years to bring you a Savior? How wicked you must be to reject the gift of Jesus Christ. That's a direct quote from George Fall, and I agree with him. Can't you see that if you don't accept Christ, you've let all of this go in vain? You know, we're held accountable for what we know. And this month, I have shared with you all a lot. Maybe some things you didn't know before this month. I can't help but think that while Jesus was on the cross, the devil was just kind of frolicking around. I've got him! I'm the winner! He's going down! But he wasn't because Jesus rose from the dead. Folks, you need to make Christ your Savior. And that's not just for the moment of, hey, I accept him and I'm going to be baptized. It's for the rest of your life. You see, the gospel, the gospels show us who Christ is. The book of Acts shows us how we should respond to him. Repent and be baptized. The epistles after the book of Acts, the epistles show us how to live a Christian life. Some of those letters, there's some good information in there for us. And the book of Revelation shows the perfection that we are going to have. You see, God's word from Genesis to Revelation shows us that he has a plan that no one else, that we would not have to perish. But we would all have the option of eternal life. As we come to our response time this morning, think on the fact that God spent 6,000 years making sure salvation would come to us through Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, 
you get an opportunity to respond to the facts and the truth that you have heard from God's word today. If you want to study some of that more, you let me know. Grab one of the elders. We'll gladly go through these conversions. I know a lot of this series has been like kind of drinking through a fire hose, but if you really want to study it, let me know. We can go back. We can look at some of these things, the prophecies, the realities of God's word. But it was his plan. It's not John Lancaster's plan of salvation. Because if it were, you all would have to pay me some money. That's how we think. It's God's plan of salvation. I'm a messenger of that plan. And that message won't change. So the question is today, when we come to our response time, and you think about that God spent 6,000 years making sure we'd have an opportunity for salvation, all you have to do is respond accordingly to His Word. Will you stand and sing with us? One last time, that website is called faithfulpreaching.org. Faithfulpreaching.org, there's a lot of good information out there, but look for George Fall. Um, It's been great to be here with you all. I ask also that you would pray for me as we go into this next series about deconstructing the Trinity. We're going to look at some things, and maybe for the first time you're going to go, what? I've never heard that. I promise you I'm not just making this stuff up so that it fits, okay? There's, there's some study there. But it's been great to be here with you all this morning to share with you this whole month from George Fall series, The Eternal Struggle, but now it's time to go. As you go this week, go knowing that our God has a furious longing for a relationship with us. His plan has stood the test of time, and with that knowledge, go and be a reflection of Him in your family, in your neighborhood, in our church in our community, in your school, and your job. Go being His light in our dark world. Will you sing this last song with us?